Hello, and welcome to the Incredible Witness Podcast. Today's episode is titled, Angles of Attack. I was thinking about some of my experiences whilst giving evidence, and it occurred to me whilst doing so that you always have to be watching and listening. Well, the key thing is listening to the different angles in which those cross-examining you are directing their questions. It's quite instructive whenever you get the chance in court to sit and listen to the questions they are posing to witnesses. Make notes in connection with these different ways that barristers will seek to discredit and undermine witnesses' evidence. In particular, pay attention to the angles they are coming from when they address their questions to witnesses. It is really important that you begin to look at the case from these from these different angles so that you can feel comfortable and assure yourself that you can confidently address answers to any such questions when in the witness box. Of course, it is not always possible to be prepared for the angles barristers will pose questions to you from, but the better prepared you are for giving evidence, the better chance you have of being able to address yourself to the question. One of the examples of an angle the barrister questioned me on occurred whilst I had been talking positively about a parent's care of their child. I recall that he began by asking, in a pleasant manner, simple questions about my involvement in the case, and then one of the angles his attack on my my evidence came from was as follows. He said, Would it be true to say that you were really under considerable pressure to complete this report on time? Now the truth of the matter was that I had only had about three weeks in which to, to start and complete the work. So the answer to the question was a simple yes, but I, di- but I did not just answer by agreeing with him. Anticipating that the angle of his attack was that I had not had sufficient time to complete the work thoroughly, I responded by saying that it was, that it was true that I had not had much time to complete the work, but then went on to add that I never have much time to finish my work. The significance of my additional response was to articulate that it is almost always the case that I am short of time, and this being the case, my work and conclusions were no less thorough than normal. In adding this information, you prevented the barrister from using this this angle as a vehicle in which to discredit my assessment and conclusions. Had I disagreed with him and attempted to argue that his question was incorrect, then I would have been attempting to deny the truth, and I I have little doubt that his subsequent questions would have resulted in exposing my dishonesty. By behaving in that way, I would have fallen into a trap of my own making, because there was no reason for me to fail to respond truthfully. It is important not to attempt to answer questions with an attitude of mind that expects every question to be an attack on you or your evidence, and consequently be defensive all the time, since this behaviour will not portray you in a positive light. It is vital to your presentation to answer each question in a positive, constructive manner, and to do so, you have to have an open mind in connection with each question. In another case I was involved in, the barrister cross-examining me asked me the following question. Can you help me with this? Explain to me how you took into account this mother's, the mother's learning difficulties when you were working with her. Now this question initially threw me, and as a consequence I had to really dig deep to think, think about how to answer it. My mind was whirring. What learning difficulties was she, was she referring to? Yes, 
the parent had missed quite a bit of education due to non-attendance and being missing from home for periods of time. But although there was some brief information in the court bundle that, that implied the mother was not engaging well with pupils and her teachers, there was no formal diagnosis of her having a recognisable learning disability. I therefore replied that whilst I accepted that the mother displayed difficulties in getting the best out of her, her school life and was a young mother, I did not accept that there was any evidence within the, court doc, within the court documents that she had a diagnosed learning disability and as a consequence had not made any allowance for this in connection with my work with her. I admit to this day I am at a loss to explain why she had asked me that question in the absence of the mother being recognised as having a learning disability. During further cross-examination, whilst continuing to argue that I had been less than fair to the mother, she stated, You complained that you, you've had difficulty arranging appointments with the mother, but it seems you, you, that you did in fact see her on six occasions. That's correct, isn't it? Yes, I replied. And how many times do you usually see a parent in order to complete a, complete a parenting assessment? It depends, I said, on the circumstances, but anywhere between four to six times. If pushed to be more precise, she continued, what's the average amount of times you, you would interview a parent? About four times, sometimes five, I replied. But you saw my client on six occasions, more than your average four or five times. She paused for a moment before continuing. So I failed to understand how you can criticise my client saying you've had difficulty arranging interviews and contacting her when she has clearly cooperated with you by meeting with you on six separate occasions. My response was as follows. Whilst it's true that she met with me on six occasions, that, that has only been possible as a result of arranging 12 appointments with her. I see, she continued, but she did keep the six appointments, didn't she? Yes, I replied, because I persevered. Although I normally see a parent four or five times, it really if ever requires me to set up twice as many appointments in order to complete my work. In this case, because of the failed appointments, it was necessary to make 12 appointments in order to see her six times. This is what I mean when I state that I experienced difficulty arranging appointments with your client. Sadly, she did not show the level of commitment I would hope to see in a parent albeit a young one who is desperate to keep her child. The barrister listened to my comments and then launched into another attack, this time focusing on the young age of the mother and the various difficulties she had experienced during her unfortunate childhood. I'm glad you recognised the very young age of the mother. Given her age and very distressing childhood, would you really expect her to work fully cooperatively with you? It strikes me that she could barely trust her own family members. So from her point of view, why would she trust you? So now the barrister was seeking to portray my expectations as being unrealistic and unreasonable given the mother's childhood. Her point was a worthwhile one from the mother's point of view, but not in my, but not in my view, sufficiently significant for the lens of looking at what was in the child's best interests. I responded, as stated in my report, I have a lot of sympathy for the mother due to her very unhappy childhood, but my, my focus has to be in meeting the needs of the child, and I maintain that the mother's actions have not shown, in my view, her, her ability to put her child's needs before that of her own.
She has shown this not once, but on numerous occasions. And for this reason, I am unable to recommend that her child should remain in her care. Mr. Watson, the barrister began, my client's child is now almost four, and he knows his mother. Now is it my, now it is my understanding that, that his current placement is not a long-term or permanent one. Is that correct? Yes, it is, I replied. Thank you. Then that means that he is going to have to be found a permanent family, and he's a black or mixed-race child, which could mean that it might take up to a year or longer to find a suitable family and place him, maybe longer. That being the case, then wouldn't it make sense that, that to see if she could receive the necessary support to meet her child's needs within that time frame? Well, that's why he, she was seen by an adult psychiatrist who explained that, in their opinion, her prognosis was such that she was unlikely to change sufficiently to meet her child's needs within the child's timescales, and further, that there was no guarantee that the therapy would be successful. In addition to the evidence of the psychiatrist, my work with the mother indicates very clearly that, rather than acknowledging his needs, that she instead thinks her son thinks and feels as she does, as opposed to recognising that his needs and feelings are different from hers. To me, this demonstrates her poor level of insight and highlights the harm he would continue to be exposed to in her care, in the absence of a substantial change in her, uh, in her insight and understanding of his needs, which I gather from the psychiatrist is likely to take at least 24 months of intensive work. In my experience, whilst it is helpful to be as prepared as possible for the, for the different angles of attack a barrister's questions may pose, it is even more crucial to remain constantly focused on the needs of the child, so as to ensure you do not allow the barrister to take you down avenues that are not consistent with what's in the child's best interest currently and in the longer term. Until next time.